This morning, we are finally going to be back in the Gospel of John. The last two months I, that I preached, uh, those last two sermons that I did were standalone messages, and since I only preach once a month, that led to a three-month break uh, from our time in the Gospel of John. But this morning, we'll finally, we're finally going to get back into it. So I hope you're encouraged by that. Uh, I'm looking forward to being back in this gospel with you. And we've now returned to this book, and we're going to pick it up right where we left off last time, which was a little while ago. And we're going to continue on our journey through it together. And just so you know, it's, it's my desire and my intention to slowly and steadily but surely take us all the way through to the end. And I rejoice at the thought of continuing to grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as we behold him in this marvelous gospel narrative. Which, as I'd said in the introduction long while back, this is the fourth and final gospel, the fourth and final divinely inspired account of Jesus's earthly life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And for those of you who are listening who, who don't have a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus, I want to I want to remind you that God led the Apostle John to write this gospel so that through it you might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may not die in your sins and perish forever, but instead be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life in Jesus' name. So I pray that this morning as you behold the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will come to repent and believe and trust in him. So, where are we picking up? Well, we're picking up where we left off. We had finished the third chapter of John last time, so now we're going to be in chapter 4. And this morning we're going to cover the first 26 verses of the chapter in which we will read of Jesus's interaction with a woman from Samaria. It's in this passage that the Apostle John makes his first mention of both Samaria and Samaritans. And the land of Israel at the time was divided into three territories from north to south. Galilee was in the north, Judea was in the south, and Samaria was right in the middle. So here's a bit of history regarding Samaria and the Samaritans. Long ago in the, in the days of Israel's kingdom, which was divided in two, the capital of the northern kingdom was relocated by one of its kings and established at a city named Samaria. Over time, the name Samaria was used not only to refer to that royal city itself, but also to the region around it, and even to the entire northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, on the other hand, was referred to as Judah, because its territory and people predominantly belonged to the Israelite tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Benjamin was also a part of this southern kingdom, but the kings were exclusively in the line of David of the tribe of Judah. And the members, therefore, of the southern kingdom were referred to as Judeans or Jews. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel came to an end when the Assyrians 
invaded their land and after a three-year siege captured the city of Samaria in 722 BC. And after they captured it, they deported large numbers of the ten tribes of Israel who inhabited that kingdom. And then they imported large numbers of foreigners from all over the Assyrian Empire. And these foreigners eventually intermixed and intermarried with the surviving northern Israelites who were left in the land, something God had forbid, forbidden the Israelites to do. But nonetheless, there is this intermixing with these foreigners who had been imported into the land. This intermarrying produced an ethnically mixed group of people, and after the name of the region in which they lived, they were called Samaritans. Religiously, they started out as polytheists. The worship of the God of Israel had merely been added to the existing pagan practices of the foreigners who had been imported by the Assyrians. But over time, the Samaritans developed their own superstitious form of religion that was devoted exclusively to the God of Israel, but was still very much deficient. They viewed only the Torah, the five books of Moses, as divine scripture. And they freely imposed their own views upon it so that they were well outside the realm of orthodoxy and thus ignorant in their beliefs. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as outsiders who were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and therefore also excluded from participating in worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, well over a century later, the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians. The Jews were also taken into captivity, and the city and the temple were destroyed. However, after seven years in exile, the Jews were able to return to the land and rebuild the temple. Now, the Samaritans in the land at the time wanted to help, but the Jews refused them, which enraged the Samaritans. And from that point on, the Samaritans did everything they could to thwart the efforts of the Jews in rebuilding the temple and, at a later time, in the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. Now, the Samaritans ended up building their own rival temple in the north on Mount Gerizim. When the region came under the rule of the Seleucid Empire, the persecution and threatening reign of the Hellenistic king Antiochus Epiphanes led the Samaritans to devote their temple to Zeus in order to appease the king. But the Jews revolted and eventually prevailed over this king, and they later entered a time of independent Jewish rule. And it was during this time that they conquered the surrounding regions, surrounding Judea. And during this time of conquering the surrounding regions, they went ahead and destroyed that Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. Nevertheless, the Samaritans, in their religious ignorance, continued to view that location as sacred and as the true central site. For worship, and this continued to be 
the major point of contention between them and their Jewish neighbors. Now, all this history shows us why there was a settled animosity between the Jews and Samaritans generation after generation. This tension was alive and well during the first century. And as we see at numerous points in the Gospels, there is that tension, that clashing between these two groups. However, as we'll see in our passage, such firmly rooted barriers of prejudice could not hinder the compassion of Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners and to ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So let's read the first four verses of chapter 4. John writes this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now back in chapter 2, we read that Jesus traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem with his first disciples in order to observe the Passover festival, and it was there that he took his ministry public by clearing out the business operations that were going on in the temple, and then during that week performing signs in the midst of the people during that time of the festival there in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 3, we read that after the festival, he went out into the Judean countryside with his disciples and had them baptize people, just as John the Baptist had been doing and was even at that time doing elsewhere in a region north of them. And by doing this at the outset of his ministry, Jesus was affirming and spreading the divinely appointed work of John the Baptist in calling the people of Israel to repent and to be baptized as a sign of their repentance in order that they might be prepared for the coming kingdom of God. There was already tension now between the Pharisees and John, and John being a prophet of God, and he was preaching repentance to the whole nation, including the Pharisees. And John actually had called the Pharisees a brood of vipers, and he warned them that the judgment of God would fall on them if they did not also repent. Now that didn't sit too well with the Pharisees, and they ended up sending a delegation from Jerusalem to John to question his authority. Now, here we have Jesus who had just caused quite a scene in Jerusalem and captured the people's interest, promoting the baptism ministry of John in the Judean wilderness. And when the Pharisees heard that so many people were going out to Jesus, they likely intended to go to investigate and confront him, as they did John. However, Jesus was operating on the Father's schedule. And it was not the appropriate time for such a confrontation. So, he decided to conclude his time in Judea and return to Galilee. He took the, the most direct route, which went straight through Samaria. 
And that was a route that strict Jews like the Pharisees avoided if they could. Now, let's read the remainder of the passage, verses 5 through 26, in which the Apostle John recounts for us a Samaritan woman's providential encounter with Jesus. Let's start in verse 5 and read along. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Well, sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, Well, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. First, we ought to take note of the social and religious taboos that Jesus was willing to break down in order to reach out to this woman for the sake of her soul. It was considered unacceptable 
for a man to openly, openly converse in public with an unrelated woman. It was considered unacceptable for a Jew to have dealings with Samaritans, as we see stated in verse 9. And this is more specifically speaking of Jews sharing utensils with Samaritans, such as the woman's water jar, which, according to the tradition of the elders, would render a Jew ceremonially unclean. And on top of the fact that it was socially unacceptable for a man to be speaking openly with an unrelated woman in public, it certainly was even more unacceptable for him to be doing so with a woman of ill repute like this Samaritan woman. And yet, Jesus, in his compassion, reached out across the aisle, so to speak, to this woman in order to draw her out from spiritual darkness and show her the way to spiritual life, which was through him. He was the Christ, the Son of God, and he could give her abundant soul-satisfying life. Now we read in verses 5 through 8 that Jesus and his disciples paused to rest when they came upon the town of Sychar in Samaria, which was the halfway point between Judea and Galilee. John says it was about the sixth hour, which is noon. It took three days on foot to go from Judea to Galilee, so this would have been the second day of their journey. And having walked all morning and presumably having walked all day the previous day, John tells us in verse 6 that Jesus was tired. He was worn out. So he sat down beside the well to rest. The well was actually about a half mile outside of the town. And we are told that the disciples went over there to buy some food while Jesus remained at the well. Now, I'm guessing he got pretty thirsty while he was waiting there in the midday sun, which is why it must have been a welcome sight to him to see the Samaritan woman coming to the well with her water jar. We see that he asked her for a drink. Now, while he was genuinely thirsty... He wasn't asking out of necessity. After all, it wouldn't be too long before his disciples returned from the town with refreshments. When he saw this Samaritan woman coming to the well, though, he saw a thirsty soul, and he had compassion on her. He decided to make this request of her, and by doing so, he broke down the social barriers and he opened the door for a conversation in which he would tell her of the gift of eternal life that he had to offer. The woman was surprised and bewildered by his request, as we can see by her response in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? With the centuries-long rivalry between Samaritans and Jews, the last thing she was expecting to hear from Jesus, if anything at all, was a gentle request to be given a drink from her water jar. However, 
Jesus, in his response, paid no mind to the earthly rivalry that existed between their people. And instead, he presented her with spiritual truth, suggesting that if she knew who he truly was, she in turn would be asking him for a drink. We read in verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. However, Jesus was using living water as a metaphor for the spiritual cleansing and new life that comes through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. The living water metaphor appears in the Old Testament, specifically in the prophets. In Jeremiah, God refers to himself as the fountain of living water. That is, he is the source of spiritual life and the one who will pour out the Holy Spirit on his people like water on thirsty land. In Isaiah, the saving, life-giving activity of the Holy Spirit is likened to streams of water flowing on dry ground and giving spiritual life and health and growth to God's redeemed people. Also, later in John's Gospel, Jesus once again uses the living water metaphor. And in that case, the Apostle John explains that he was referring to the coming transformative work and life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, whom he would, after his ascension, pour out on those who believe in him. We read in chapter 7 of John's Gospel that Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that was John's explanation as the narrator. Now, Jesus offered the Samaritan woman living water which he referred to as the gift of God. This once again shows us, the readers, that Jesus is the Son of God who is capable of doing only, or he's capable of doing what only God can do. He is equal with God. He and the Father are one. God referred to himself as the fountain of living water, and here we have Jesus saying he is the one who would give that living water. The Samaritan woman, however, did not perceive the spiritual significance of Jesus' statement. After all, Samaritans only view their own version of the Torah, the books of Moses, as divine scripture, and therefore they would not have been aware of the living water references found in the prophets that we just read. However, we can see the immediate relevance of the metaphor in light of the physical well that was right in front of them. And we see in the Gospels that Jesus often made use of things that people could physically see and connect with in order to teach them of greater things that are unseen, that is, to teach them spiritual truths. 
And Jesus does go on to explain to the Samaritan woman what he is speaking of, which was necessary because the woman took his words literally. The only water that was present among them was deep down in that well that they were sitting next to. And Jesus had no means to access that water, so not realizing that he was speaking spiritual truth, she questioned his offer. Read in verse 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Well, let me share one Bible commentator's explanation of the woman's response that I found to be helpful. He wrote the following. To obtain water on this spot, even the patriarch Jacob had found it necessary to dig a well and to provide the means for raising the water from deep, from the deep hole. If Jesus was offering fresh water without expending the energy to dig or using the means provided, he was greater than Jacob or a cheap charlatan. The woman has little doubt that Jesus is the latter. The form of her question implies the answer was a decisive no in her own mind. That question, are you greater than our father Jacob? The answer is no in her mind. He goes on to write, but misunderstanding combines with irony to make the woman twice wrong. The living water Jesus offers does not come from an ordinary well. And Jesus is, in fact, far greater than the patriarch Jacob. That was a really helpful comment explanation of, of what's going on there with her response. And she was wrong. She didn't realize who was sitting right in front of her, who he truly was. Jesus patiently goes on to explain his statement to her. In verse, starting in verse 13, he says, it says, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this is a powerful picture of the problem of people living their earthly lives apart from God. And why all people need the gift of eternal life that Jesus gives by means of the Holy Spirit. The life of the sinner is separated from the life of God, so that the sinner is said to be spiritually dead. He looks to earthly things to satisfy his soul's thirst for joy, satisfaction, purpose, and peace. But this is a vain pursuit because the things of earth do not last nor can they ultimately and permanently fill that spiritual void. They are just like the well, something that you have to keep coming back to and drawing water from in order to try to satisfy your soul's thirst. But that thirst can only be truly and permanently satisfied by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gives the gift of the eternal and abundant, soul-satisfying, spiritual life to those who believe 
in him. Those of you who are living life apart from God need to stop trying to satisfy your soul's thirst with meager drinks from earthly wells. Turn in faith to God, the fountain of living water, and to Jesus Christ, his Son, who graciously gives that living water to sinners who repent and believe in his name. Now we see that the Samaritan woman was still thinking in earthly terms and not connecting with spiritual truth that Jesus was speaking. She just focuses on the pleasant thought of never being thirsty for water again. And she decides to humor him with the following response. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and or have to come here to draw water. The woman made light of what Jesus had said. So, Jesus moved the conversation to something she would not be able to so easily dismiss. In order to help the woman, to help her come to terms with the nature of the gift he was offering, Jesus reveals his supernatural knowledge of her life and, with gentleness, exposes her sin. We read in verses 16, 16 through 18, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. It's likely that this is why the woman had come to fill her water jar during the hottest time of the day at a well that was half a mile outside of town. It was better to draw water at a closer location in, in the morning or the evening when it was cooler, but she was likely avoiding the other women of the town who were well aware of her shameful reputation. However, she had to come to grips with the reality of her own sin and guilt if she was to truly understand the greatness of the gift Jesus had to offer and realize her desperate need for it. Jesus was helping her see that rather than just letting, uh, or he was helping her to see the reality of her own sin um, and not letting her just ignore it or downplay it. So he wasn't shaming her, he was seeking to help her. And by the way, Jesus also knows all about your life. He knows all about your sin. If you continue to try to hide or ignore or downplay or justify your sin, then your guilt before God will remain and you will die in your sins and you will perish forever. But if you repent and confess your sins to Jesus and ask in faith for the forgiveness and eternal life he has to give, you will receive it and you will be saved. It's the free gift of God that he has to offer. The Samaritan woman recognizes that Jesus' knowledge of her, of her sin, 
was true and accurate. However, she was not comfortable with the focus shifting to the matter of her personal sin, as I'm sure we can all relate. So she immediately attempted to change the subject by bringing up the major religious point of contention between her people and the Jews, and that was the geographical location God had chosen as the center for worship. The religious topic was a convenient diversion. We read in 19 and 20, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now the mountain the woman is referring to is, is Mount Gerizim, which they were right next to. They could see it. It was right before them. And the Samaritans erroneously taught that this was the sacred location God had chosen as the central location of worship. And Jesus, once again, gave a response the woman was not expecting. We read in verses 21 through 24, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus got to the heart of the matter, which was the nature of true worship. He acknowledged that the Jewish worship at Jerusalem was in accordance with the truth of God's revelation in the scriptures. Aside from the Torah, the Samaritans rejected the rest of God's revelation and therefore did not worship according to true knowledge. However, Jesus also informed the woman that the designation of the temple in Jerusalem as the central location for worshiping God was about to become obsolete. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, and thus the one who is greater than the temple in Jerusalem, was soon going to fulfill, through his death, burial, and resurrection, all that the divinely prescribed temple worship signified. He was then going to pour out the Holy Spirit on the true worshipers, those believing in his name. And he was going to begin building his church, that is, the community of Christ's redeemed and sanctified people who are individually and corporately indwelt by the Holy Spirit and thus are themselves the spiritual temple of the living God. Christ's church would be manifested in local assemblies, and his people would corporately worship the Father in spirit and truth wherever they were gathered together in his name. Another thing to keep in mind is that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans 
years before John wrote this gospel. And the church had been rapidly growing for decades. So even the earliest readers of John's gospel could recognize the significance and the clear fulfillment of Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman. And Jesus told her that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Location was not the central issue. Her heart was the central issue. And so he kept the focus on her. He revealed to her that he knew all about her sin, and he offered her the gracious gift of eternal life and called her to become a true worshiper of God. She did not yet believe, though. She had been presented with truth, but she was still resistant to it. She had these things explained to her, but she was still confused. She had been dealt with kindly and patiently, but she still had her guard up. She made one last attempt to dismiss the claims of Jesus. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now that answer might have been an effective conversation ender many times before, but not this time, not with this person. She didn't realize who she was talking to. The Samaritans believed in the coming Messiah as well, but their understanding of him was severely limited. Again, because they only acknowledged the books of Moses, the Torah, as divine scripture and rejected the rest of scripture. However, there are messianic references even in those books. And the key messianic text that they would primarily looked to is the text that held out God's promise to one day raise up a prophet like Moses. And this, this promise, the person that God had promised this Moses-like prophet is referred to as the prophet, capital P, and it's another messianic reference. We read in Deuteronomy 18, 16, Moses told the Israelites, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And then he goes on to share with them what God had said to him personally. God said to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So there's the messianic reference she was familiar with. And so we have her statement. Well, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus then responded to the woman. And this last response was the most surprising one of all. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus explicitly declared to the Samaritan woman that he is the long-awaited Messiah. And with that, 
Her eyes were opened, and she believed, as can be seen in the verses that follow. She left her water jar behind and took off to tell the whole town. But we'll cover that part, that part of the account next time. So to those of you who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, well, you've beheld him this morning. And you've learned that he alone is the way to salvation. He alone is the savior of sinners. Will you give your life to him today? Will your thirsty soul drink from the fountain of living water? Confess your sins and turn in faith to him as the son of God who is Lord over all so that you might receive forgiveness and eternal life in his name and become a true worshiper of God, like that Samaritan woman did, by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your incredible mercy upon those of us who believe in your Son. It is by your grace that we came to a knowledge of the truth. It's by your grace that we came to believe and that we responded by returning from our sins and placing our faith in Jesus Christ, your son, and following after him. And Father, I, I pray that you would show that same grace and that same mercy to those who are listening, who are not yet reconciled to you, who are still in their sins, who do not have eternal life, I pray that you would open their eyes, grant them the gift of faith, that they might repent and believe in your Son, and that they might truly receive the gift of eternal life through faith in him and have their sins forgiven and have the hope of life with Jesus in his coming kingdom and become a true worshiper, one who seeks to live for you, one who sees that your will is good and perfect and pleasing. I pray for your mercy on them this morning. And for the rest of us, Father, we just rejoice. We rejoice at the wonderful gift of salvation you have given through your Son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming into the world to accomplish the work of redemption that was necessary in order for sinners like us to be forgiven and justified before God through faith in you. Your atoning work on the cross, your atoning death in our place for our sins, paid the penalty for us so that we, rather than being judged and condemned, could be forgiven and justly counted as righteous by you. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the newness of life you caused us to walk in. And we pray that you would help us this coming week to rejoice in you to worship and honor you and give you all the glory. Amen.